Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We're perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. So the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Matthew's recorded a series of miracles at the beginning of chapter 8. It'll continue in chapter 9 and chapter 10. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 35, speaking about the coming Messiah and the Messiah's kingdom, promised that in that kingdom, the blind would see and the lame would walk. And that's exactly what we see happening in verses 5 and 6. Jesus has healed leprosy in verses 1 through 4. Palsy in verses 5 through 13. Fever in verses 14 through 17. But now Jesus, after revealing his power over disease and over demons, he's going to demonstrate his power over nature, over disasters in verses 18 through 27. Jesus has left the crowds to take leave with his disciples and some of the crowds want to see more miracles. They're curious about his identity. They're curious about his mission. They're wondering whether or not he's the Messiah. And some Bible teachers suggest that this storm that day might have been satanic in origin. Some sort of attempt to kill Jesus before the gospel even gets started. The ferocity of the storm and the fear that wells up inside of the seasoned fishermen have caused people to wonder, is there something more happening? We don't know. But we know that the storms on the Galilee weren't uncommon. Jesus remains calm. It's the kind of calm that no matter how terrifying the storm produces peace as Jesus is not simply in the center of the lake, he is also in the center of God's plan and the center of God's purpose. God's plan and God's purpose are going to unfold. The Lord Jesus can calm the sea and the terrified disciples will go from a great tempest in verse 24 to a great calm in verse 26 because they have a great savior in verse 27. And how about you? Have violent storms produced great fear in your life? Or are you experiencing a great calm? Are you in the center of God's will? Are you experiencing his friendship and fellowship and relationship? 
Because if this passage tells us anything, it reminds us that it begins with a promise. Jesus said, cross over. It will continue with his presence and it will end with his power. People everywhere want happiness. But I think what they really want, what they really want is peace. They want peace with God. They want peace in their world. And they wonder if that's even possible. They wonder if they can have peace with God and peace in the world. Because we live in such a broken world. But Jesus has redeemed that world. The world remains filled with phobias and fears. And I know that that's redundant. You know, in World War II, my father and my grandfather and all of my aunts and uncles were in Sicily. The Americans had invaded the island and they set up a governor, a military governor. And during World War II, a military governor met with General George Patton in Sicily, not far from where my family lived. And when the governor praised Patton highly for his courage and bravery, the general rep replied, sir, I'm not a brave man. Truth is, I'm a craven coward. He said, I've never been within the sound of gunshots or the sight of battle in my whole life that I wasn't so scared that I had sweat dripping from my palms, unquote. Years later, when Patton wrote his own autobiography and it was published, it contained this astonishing statement written by the general. He said, quote, I learned very early in my life never to take counsel from my fears, unquote. The truth is we do take counsel from the voice inside of us or the circumstances around us. There are voices that speak to us. Voices that will speak about fear or it will speak about faith. To whom or to what will you listen to when the fierce storm hits? And the truth is almost invariably you can count on the storm to come. It is right before the storm for some of us. And some of us are in the storm. But if you live long enough, the chances are there will be a storm in your life. A few fearful sailors in desperation will awaken the faithful Savior in verses 25 and 26. And watch how quickly the storm becomes an ocean of calm waters, much to the amazement of the astonished disciples. Look at verse 23, following the king into the storm. It says, now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the geography or the topography, the Sea of Galilee is to the northern part of Israel. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long. It's about six to seven miles wide. In antiquity, it may have even been a little bit larger. The body of water is about 680 feet below the sea level. And north of the Galilee is, there, uh, is a place called Mount Hermon or Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon rises 
9,280 feet below sea, above sea level. Now that might not seem all that impressive, particularly if you live here in Colorado, when we have 14,000 foot mountains. But think about it. There is about six to 700 feet below sea level. And then if you think about it, you can see this monster mountain jut up. And in the wintertime, it's sometimes like in this picture, covered with snow and cold air will descend from Mount Ermin. It will continue through the ravine. It will enter, if you will, as it continues to go south, it will funnel into the Sea of Galilee. And so all of a sudden, sudden storms will well up. And sometimes the waves have been as high as 25 feet. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that when Jesus commanded them to get into the boat and he himself got into the boat, do you suppose Jesus knew that the storm was coming? I'm going to suggest to you the answer is yes. Jesus had the ability to stop the storm before it ever began. Wouldn't you agree? He knows it's coming. He has the ability to stop it. So why does he permit the storm? And I think that the question could be asked even of ourselves, can't it? The Lord knows the truth about our life. He knows the truth about what's going on in our life. He has every ability and all of the resources to stop it before it ever happens. What is the reason? Why does God permit this? And I'm going to suggest to you that the answer in part might be found in verse 27 when it says, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Whatever the reason and for whatever reason is happening, sometimes the storm will allow you to see Jesus in ways that you've never seen him before, to love him in ways that you've never loved him before, to trust him in ways that you've never trusted him before. And so in verse 18, look what it says. Now, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, in verse 18, remember before, it says, and when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Why is that important to you? It's important to you because guess what? They are in the storm because Jesus has invited them to follow him into the storm. And this becomes an important part of our lesson. And even as we look at it and we evaluate it in light of our own life, because sometimes you'll find yourself in a storm for one of two reasons. This is a storm, not that you, it wasn't a welcome storm. It was an unwelcome storm. Storms take those two forms, the welcome and the unwelcome. Those that that are raging because you're following Jesus and those that are raging because you're running away from Jesus. Jonah experienced the storm from running away from him. These disciples are experiencing the storm in obedience and submission and following Jesus. And the reason why that becomes important for you and for, for me is because sometimes you are exactly where God wants you. Not in rebellion and disobedience, but in submission and obedience to Christ. Again, the storm prompts the question, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Clearly, the storm will strengthen the belief 
among Jesus' followers strengthened the belief of his personal care for them, his personal concern for them, the kind of care and concern that can deliver you out of the violent storms of life, the fearful trials, the fearful experiences. But not only that, the ability to produce calm, peace, assurance. In verse 24, look what it says. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. The word tempest or storm is a Greek noun. Almost all of you are going to recognize it. Seismos. You know that word, don't you? Our English borrowed words include seismic, seismology. We use the term seismic to describe the movement, the undulation of the earth. The word is an earthquake word. Just like storms will upset, overthrow, displace. In the text where it says, so the boat was covered with the waves, means that the waves were so high that the boat was hidden from view. Now, some of you have been on storms like that. Imagine if you see a 20-foot-plus wave, and it's rolling, and it's heaving, and it's going up and down. The implication is that those people on the shore can't even see the boat. For all intents and purposes, it has quite disappeared from view. And I think that storms take at least those two forms. Those that are visible and undeniable. But sometimes the storm is invisible and internal. We know that there are pains and problems that we all experience with either the death of a child or a sickness or a difficulty or the loss of a job. But sometimes the storms rage below the surface and you never see because you can't see into the person's heart and you don't know what's going on in their life. Some things are visible. Some things are invisible to the naked eye. But note what the text says. He was asleep. By the way, this is the only time in the New Testament that he's asleep. We have every reason to believe that Jesus is a normal human being and he does normal human being things. He's asleep. But it's okay to ask the question, why was he asleep? What do you suppose the answer is? What's the most obvious answer? He's tired. That's right. Those of you who have been following along in the gospel in, in, in Matthew chapter 8, remember his day has started very, very early. He's already gone to the synagogue. He's already healed people. He's already delivered a demonically possessed person. He's already opened blind eyes. He's already healed the servant. He's already cast out demons. He has, he's gone into the evening at home with Peter. He's healed his mother-in-law. And the crowds have gathered in. And he's been healing and healing and healing. In his humanity, he grows weary and tired. 
But even in his weariness and even though he is tired, he's confident in the will of God. And look at the text itself because the storm is mentioned first. And I think that that's important even in our text. The storm is mentioned first and his sleep is mentioned second. It prompts yet another question. One I think that most of you are already asking. How could you stay asleep? How could you not hear the crashing waves? How can you not feel the roller coaster ride as the boat swells on the wave? It rises and it falls. Those of you who have ever been in an, in an elevator or, or on a plane and it drops in altitude or you've been on an ocean when the waves are roaring and your stomach stays up there and then it goes down there and you go, how could you not know that? How can he not hear the oars pressing against the water? How can he not hear the groans? How can he not smell the fear? Why wasn't that enough to wake him up? And you might be thinking the same thing about your own life. Jesus, how could you possibly be sleeping through this difficult part of my life? How could you have fallen asleep in the boat if you're even in the boat? Some of you probably cried out, haven't you? Lord, where are you? How come I can't sense your presence? How come I'm not aware of your presence? But remember what you already know. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, I'm going to go, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. Jesus promises to be with you. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We know that a very real Jesus is very really present. Jesus isn't worried. He isn't agitated. Jesus doesn't pace back and forth in heaven, wringing his hands, wondering, I can't believe you've done this to yourself. I, how did you get yourself into this mess? He doesn't do that. He's not freaking out over your situation. And you see, this is one of the things that should comfort each and every one of us because guess when it, when it seems like our world is raging out of control, Jesus is in control, really in control. Some people have the strange notion, if I don't feel his presence, he's not there. But the, again, one of the reoccurring central themes in the story of Jesus is his presence. He has made a promise. He has his presence with us. God has the ability to see us and protect us and preserve us in life's storms. And many people are gripped by fear. What is it that you're afraid of? Some people worry about their job. Some people worry about their health. Some people worry about their future. What is it that frightens you? The winds of change? Political incompetence? The lightning of disaster? The thunder of a crashing economy? The implosion of our country? 
the zombie apocalypse. I know for some of you, it is the zombie apocalypse. And if TV is any indication, the TV is filled with stories of a group of people who survive into an uncertain future. But I think it reflects the fear of our culture. What's going to happen to us? In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, the prophet writes, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The prophet says, We can have safety and peace in the storm when our mind is fixed on the Lord because we trust the Lord. And so this becomes one of the keys. Look at the next section, trusting the key in the storm. In verse 25, it says, Then his disciples came to him and awoke him. Someone in first service said, Be honest. If you were in the boat, you would have woke him up too. And I said, You're exactly right. He awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We're perishing. The word perishing is rooted to a word which means destroyed. In Mark's gospel, chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus, in the same situation, says, let us cross over to the other side. Here in Matthew's gospel, it says he commanded them. Chuck Smith was fond of saying, Jesus said, cross over, not sink under. I'll never forget that. The reason why is because we can trust Jesus when he gives us a promise. If Jesus says, I want you to go in a particular direction and I'm going to go with you, you are going to make it. Now I want to be blunt here for just a moment. You've already read the text. You know how the story ends. Do the people in the boat and Jesus die? Because of this event. No, they don't. Will Jesus and everyone in that boat eventually die? The answer is yes. They're just not going to die that day. This isn't the day that they're going to die. And you might face a storm and you might face a difficulty and you might face a challenge and God might deliver you and he might deliver you over and over and over again. But there's going to come one final storm that each and every one of us must weather. Peter would later write in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4, he would say, he has given us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in this world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. We can trust Jesus when he gives us a promise. We can trust Jesus when he gives us a promise. And the disciples' prayer is short. dare we say, and sincere. Do you think they're sincere in their prayer? I kind of think that they are. They said, Lord, save us. We're perishing. Amen. 
Let me ask you a question. Do you think they're afraid? I think that that's the right answer. I think they really are afraid. They're seized with a fear that seems beyond their control. For some of you, this is something very, very easy to relate to, particularly if you've ever been seized with a fear that you didn't seem to be able to control. One person talked about they were walking in the woods and they saw a bear and their heart sunk within them as they are literally just feet away from a bear. Some of you may have had the experience of being robbed. I hope not. But if you've ever had the experience of having someone take a weapon, a gun, and point it at you and say, if you move, I'm going to shoot you, there might be a moment where you are filled with fear. When they say, we're perishing. In a disaster, we need a Lord, not a teacher. The disciples aren't looking for an intellectual talk on the Sea of Galilee or the composition of the water in the Galilee. They're not looking for insight or a documentary on on the Galilee. They're not looking for intellectual insight on tsunamis. Tidal waves are not overcome by education. They're not simply looking for a solution to climate change. They want out of there. They want to be delivered. They're looking for salvation. And there it is. Sometimes our fearful experiences lead us to the terrifying discovery that there are certain things that we are not in control of. There are certain things that you don't get to be in charge. When the diagnosis comes that your husband or your wife has been diagnosed with cancer or some other issue or when you've lost your job or some other difficulty faces you, some terrifying moment, you wonder, you wonder, you wonder how it could have come to this. The disciples can't control the weather. They're seasoned fishermen and they are terrified and we can't control natural disasters. We can choose to live next door to a volcano or not live next door to a volcano. But just for purposes of discussion, let's say that you choose to live anywhere on the earth. Are you going to live somewhere absent tornadoes, absent hurricane, absent earthquake, absent flood, absent electric storms? If you take all of the possible bad things that could happen and you go anywhere in the world, can you escape the fact that something bad might happen? I don't think you can. Where on the earth can you go and live risk-free? Have you picked a spot where the waves are very, very high and your boat is very, very small? Then it makes good sense that you want to have somebody in that boat who knows you and loves you and can take you safely to the shore. We sang about it in our worship. But I think it's important to just give you a few words about fear. There was a French existentialist who said that each century can be summarized by one word. 
For the 17th century, he picked the word mathematics. In the 18th century, he picked two words he cheated. He said natural sciences. In the 19th century, he picked the word biology. For the 20th century, he picked the word fear. How interesting. He didn't live to see the 21st century. But what word do you suppose he might have chosen? Fear again? What would you offer? Technology? Do we live in a time where maybe because the century is so far into the future, do we dare pick a word and hope that this becomes the word that characterizes our life and our world? Could we pick the word faith? Could we pick the word revival? Is it possible that the whole world could be different if we choose a different way to look at the world? I read somewhere where a wife's number one fear is that of being used and abandoned. A husband's number one fear is that of failure. Have you ever been so afraid that you thought that you might die? Or have you ever been so afraid because someone you love might die? We're all in the same boat and our lives are subject to the same storms. And sometimes we give in to fear and we want to abandon ship and bail out. And let me just share this one thing with you as we continue our study. Storms will sometimes intensify the fear, won't they? You know that the storm is coming, but you don't feel the full onslaught until it hits you. That's how my father was when Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005. He watched the TV, he heard about the warnings, but he just simply didn't believe it could possibly be true. Fear intensifies the storm. There was a crusty old sea captain who used some pretty colorful language and he was also an outspoken atheist and one night in the storm he was washed overboard. His men heard him crying out to God for help and when he finally was rescued, the men said to him, I thought you didn't believe in God. And the captain replied, well, if there isn't a God, there ought to be for times like this. And that's exactly right. Even the atheist, the agnostic, and the unbeliever will search their heart and search their soul because they too want to know how they can weather the storm. Sometimes in the storm, people are willing to ask questions that they would never otherwise ask. What do I really believe? What do I believe about the world in which I'm living in? Fear can also bring paralysis. Fear always involves the threat of loss. You know, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, the apostle John writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. The Bible doesn't say that the opposite of fear is courage. 
Did you know that the opposite of fear is love? You might wonder, how could that possibly be? Let me tell you how. Think about what fear is. If you take fear and you boil it down to its fundamental element, it's loss. That's what fear is. I could lose my life. I could lose my marriage. I could lose my wife. I could lose my job. I could lose my children. I could lose. I could lose. I could lose. And the Bible says, greater love hath no man than this, that he's willing to lay down his life for a friend. Ultimately, biblically, love is sacrifice, but it's a willing sacrifice. It's a willing loss. The difference between fear and love is one is voluntary and one is involuntary. And so the solution to fear is love. I'm not talking about sloppy agape. I'm not talking about superficial sentiment. Sentiment is emotion without commitment. I'm talking about the biblical definition of love and the biblical view of love where it's the kind of love that has its origin in God and it's modeled in Jesus and it's spoken about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the kind of love that looks for opportunities to give instead of take. Fear always looks with suspicion. And says, what will this person do to me? But love thinks no evil. Fear thinks about nothing but evil. Love labors daily in sacrificial tasks. But fear puts off those tasks because fear is paralyzing. And fear wonders if it even matters. Love is willing to give. Fear protects self. Love moves us towards others. And fear shrinks away from others. Remember, love casts out fear. And so if you stop and you think about it and you want fear to go away, you're going to need something that has expulsive power. Something that can drive it away from you. And guess what? The choice returns. Because you can choose to love the Lord and you can choose to have faith in the Lord. You can choose to have confidence in the Lord. You can choose to believe his promises. You can choose to believe his word. You can choose to count on his love. Love produces boldness. Think about the woman who's fearful of a bug or a rodent or a snake. Think about that same five foot four woman with a broom as she stands between herself and her children. What would cause a woman who's five foot four to stand toe to toe with an eight foot bear? It's because of the children behind her. All of a sudden, something becomes greater than her fear. Her love for her children overwhelms the fear. Loving God expels fear. And the more we love, the less we fear. And we never find Jesus afraid of anything or anyone. Some people might say, well, what about the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember, he's sweating great drops of blood. Is he fearful? I'm going to suggest to you that fear is a human emotion. Just like the Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. Is it possible? Is it possible? 
impossible to live your life as a human being absent fear. And I'm going to suggest to you not in a healthy way. There's a healthy fear. There's a reason why it's a good idea to look both ways before you cross the street. There's a reason why when you hear a rattlesnake's rattle, it's a very good idea just to go in the opposite direction. No wonder Jesus can say, without hypocrisy, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, in the little epistle of John that we just quoted, he writes that fear brings torment or punishment. Fear stems from the consequences of what either God can do or, or man can do to you. And so all fear is rooted in what someone may or may not be able to do. The Bible says that the wicked flee when no one is running after them. Some fears are rooted in reality. Robert, not his real name, believed that he was being followed all the time. Robert was a drug counselor. And that's commendable and noble. But Robert, the drug counselor, became Robert, the drug dealer. He lived a double life. He was always fearing getting caught. He was always living in the shadow of the consequences of being caught. And when you live a double life, if you live one life in church and another life out there, the chances are that kind of duplicitous life is going to take its emotional toll on you. In verse 26, look at what it says. Jesus said, why are you fearful? Oh, you have little faith. Matthew Henry offers this excellent insight. He says, quote, He does not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. Unquote. I love that. That expression that Jesus gives, oh, you of little faith. It's used here, and it's used five other times in the New Testament. In chapter 6, verse 30 of Matthew, here in chapter 8, in chapter 14, verse 31, chapter 16, verse 8, again in Luke chapter 12, verse 28, is Jesus upset because of their lack of faith? I'm going to suggest to you, it isn't just simply that. He's asking the question, why are you fearful? Think about it for just a moment. Jesus has healed the leper. He's healed the centurion servant and many others. He's cast out demons. One Bible writer says, quote, haven't you seen enough of my power and experienced enough of my love to know that you're perfectly safe with me? Unquote. I love that. The reason why I love that is because of the rub. The rub is if you say it out loud, it sounds shocking. But each and every one of us will come to a place in our life where we will ask that question, is life safe with Jesus? Can I be safe with Jesus? I want to point something out to you. Jesus is asking the question, 
while the storm is raging. He doesn't ask the question, hey, guess what? Ladies and gentlemen, there's a storm coming. Hey, before we hit the storm, I, I, I just want to ask you a quick question. Um, why are you so fearful, oh, you of little faith? He doesn't even ask it after the storm. He's asking it when the waters are heaving and the waves have swollen all around you. And think about the person who's going to answer the question on its face. Jesus, what did you just ask me? Why are you fearful? Oh, look around. Have you forgotten how high the waves are? Have you forgotten how deep the water is? Have you forgotten how far it is to shore? And I ditched classes at the YMCA and I never learned to swim. That's not what's happening there. We need to ask a different question. Do we dare? Does Jesus really expect faith in the storm? you think the answer is? Oh, you have little faith. Why are you fearful? The implication is this is exactly what his expectation is. That has he been so long with you? Has he been so faithful to you? Has he been so kind and loving? How could you come to the conclusion that you're not safe with him? Does Jesus really expect faith in the storm and I think that the answer is yes and what is the solution to fear he gives it in that very simple statement why are you fearful oh you of little faith the implication being that even a modest amount of faith even a modest amount of faith is going to be expulsive enough to cast out the fear the solution to fear fear's antidote is love that's informed by faith and faith helps us cope with our fears faith is trusting the Lord it's trusting the Lord Jesus when we have problems beyond our powers we need a power that's beyond our problems you should tweet that when we have problems beyond our powers, we need a power beyond our problems. We need the power of God and the presence of the Savior. We need the living Lord Jesus. And so look what it says at the end of the verse. Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. Earlier, remember earlier in, in, in verse 20? In your text, Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The son of man has no place to, la to, to lay his head. The homeless king, the homeless king has absolute authority over the wind and the waves. Jesus continues to rebuke the winds and the seas. And as he rebukes the wind and the sea, there's this great calm that sweeps over. 
And so the New Testament's testimony, that's exactly what Jesus does. The raging waters, the howling winds, Jesus will bring calm, calm in the storm. By the way, Jesus will use three basic methods in his earthly ministry. Miracles, teaching, training. But do you know what miracles and teaching and training all have in common? All are meant to have the net effect of strengthening your faith and building your trust and your confidence. It is a miracle and a teaching and a training that's meant to impart to you confidence so that you can know him and love him and trust him. And it says at the end in verse, verse 26, then he arose, he rebukes the winds. There's a great calm. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, verse 49, we read in the same incident, Jesus says, peace, be still. One translation says, hush, be quiet, be still. Jesus speaks to the weather as if it were a wayward child. The winds cease. The waves become like glass. The crisis is past as quickly as it came. If there's any benefit whatsoever to a storm, it's the powerful calm that comes afterwards. Remember, the storm was preceded by a promise. Let us cross over to the other side. It includes the presence of the Lord. They took Jesus with them. And the manifestation of power, he arises, he rebukes the wind and the sea. And guess what? That becomes a picture of your life. Jesus promises. He says, walk with me. Take me with you. Take me with you. When you see the clouds start to gather, when you feel the bitter wind against your soul, when you know that the storm is coming. By the way, is there a great storm in your life right at this very moment? Or is there a great calm in your life? Calm is such a wonderful word. And it's come back into favor in our culture and society. It's interesting, even the unbeliever likes the word calm. Do you know what the word means? Motionless. It speaks of stillness. It carries the idea of composure, self-possession. When we say, I need you to stay calm, the implication is that you have your wits about you and that you're able to evaluate what it is that you're going through. And what brings calm? Is it simply the absence of the storm? Is it the innocence of the heart? Or is it confidence in God? Faith in God. Faith fights fear and then brings calm. Faith fights fear when it's motivated by love. Do you doubt the divine wisdom or his power or his love? Is Jesus on board?
this boat that you call your life is the boat very, very small and the waves very, very large. Remember that prayer and petition can bring calm. Make no mistake about it, they're praying. Wake up, Jesus. Save us. Amen. What's really cool is that petition and prayer also bring calm. What have you told Jesus in your storm? What have you said to him? What have you asked him? Do you know why this becomes so very, very important? Because prayer keeps us close. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, again, Isaiah writes, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence, that shall be your strength. And then it says these awful words, but you would not. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. The Lord invites us, return and rest. And fear says, no, I'm going to make a run for it. I'm going to run away from God and I'm going to run away from Jesus and I'm going to run away from the gospel and I'm going to run away from hope and make no mistake about it. When you run with fear, you run away from the Lord. No wonder the Lord says, return and rest. You'll find comfort. In verse 27, it says, so the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Remember what the storm has done? It's caused them to ask perhaps the most important question that can be asked. Who is this Jesus? Who is he really? What can he do? Is he the creator of the universe? The universe is subject to God. There's no single renegade molecule anywhere in the universe. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus sustains the world by the word of his power in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Paul writes in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, that are visible and invisible invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus has power over all things external, but Jesus has power over all things internal. It's interesting Jesus has the power of Jehovah. In Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9, the psalmist writes, O Jehovah, Lord of hosts, who is like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea when its waves heave or rise. You still them. And the Galilee's waves rise. And Jesus says, peace, 
be still. Who is this Jesus? Who could he possibly be? Is he the sovereign Lord? Is he Israel's Messiah? And does his care and does his power extend to you? And guess what? The moment you realize and recognize, you go, no, his promise is for me. His presence is with me. He said, look, I'm going, but if I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he will be with you and he will be in you. You know, there are two kinds of people in the world. I know you know this one, Italian people and those who wish they were. The other two people, those who are woefully ignorant and or willfully ignorant of Jesus. There are those who are woefully ignorant of Jesus. They don't really want to know who he is. They don't really want to know. And so they go out of their way to ignore him. But Paul writes, there's going to come a time where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. People will confess that on this side of eternity, or they will confess that on the other side of eternity. But make no mistake about it, everyone will come to the truthful knowledge of who Jesus really is. So what have we learned? Storms come, even when we follow Jesus in obedience. The wind will howl and the waves will rage, not in rebellion and disobedience, but sometimes because you're exactly where God wants you to be. You're in the center of his will. And we've learned that sometimes things will happen and we have no control over it whatsoever. And so the only thing we can do is appeal to the person who is in complete control the disciples cry in fear and panic for Jesus to save them. And Jesus asks about fear. And he asks about faith. Does it shock you that he asks about your fear? And your faith? Remember, faith will lead to a greater revelation about Jesus' nature and his ability. Jesus has given a promise. And Jesus has promised his presence in the storm. And that we have resources in the storm. And no matter how fierce, no matter how frightening the experience, Jesus invites us to exchange the fear for a faith that's motivated by love. And so we have his promise. And we have his presence. And we have his power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, for every single person who finds himself or herself with an uncontrollable fear, Lord, we pray that you would invite them to exchange that fear for faith informed by love. That we can trust you. That we can answer the question, am I safe with Jesus? I 
think we know the answer. In honesty, we can't be safe anywhere else. And so, Lord, we turn to you with confident hope, praying that you will fill our hearts, not with fear, but with faith, the kind of faith that's motivated by love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.